To become climate neutral, cities need to transform fast. But where does the money for the necessary investments come from? This is the second episode in our series Empowering Cities. Our guest will discuss how we can finance urban transformation and make the zero carbon city a reality. Empowering Cities is part of our project New Urban Progress, a transatlantic dialogue on how to make cities more innovative, green, and for all. The project is made possible by a joint metro initiative of Das Progressive Zentrum, the Alfred Hehausen Gesellschaft, and the Progressive Policy Institute. My name is Diego Rivas, and you are listening to Talking Progress. This podcast explores new ideas for social progress in Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces. Today, you are listening to our transatlantic series, Empowering Cities. This podcast was produced by Alfred Hehausen Gesellschaft and hosted by Andreas Hochler. Let's get started. Too little, too late. This is the common outcry not only by Fridays for Future activists, but also from scientists from all over the world. In order to reach the Paris climate goals, first and foremost to keep global warming at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius, we need to speed up our efforts enormously. While new buildings with high energy standards are being planned and built in other parts of the world, Europe is still struggling to equip existing buildings with fossil fuel saving standards. How will future sustainable European cities look like? There are many plans, but the ideas need to be financed. That's what we will talk about today in Think Forwards. Our guests, Dr. Fritzi Kulageib. She is Chief Economist at KfW Group and has more than 17 years of experience at the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the financial sector. Welcome. Good afternoon. Good to have you. Also with us today, Dr. Gerion Urz. He is currently head of sustainability of Gropius, a construction firm focused on timber hybrid buildings, setting a new standard for smart living. Prior to this role, he has been Europe foresight leader at Arup, has been working on innovative projects with clients such as the city of Eschborn, close to Frankfurt, in Germany, and Volkswagen Group. Welcome, Dr. Hertz. Thanks a lot. We start with a third person and want to get into our debate with this. Well, we're in the midst of a global climate emergency, something that has described as, in some ways, the most significant global political challenge ever, whereof the economics and the investments have to play a major role to foster and encourage a transition before it's too late says Philipp Rode, Executive Director of LSE Cities and Associate Professorial Research Fellow at the London School of Economics. Um, Ms. Kuller-Geib, most significant challenge ever, that's how he put it, and some scientists argue it almost certainly is too late, at least for the 1.5 degree goal. Ms. Kuller-Geib, give us some numbers. What would be the estimated amount needed for a climate-neutral Germany until 2050? 
Yeah, we've just published a study on the needed investment to reach climate neutrality. And we came out with a number of 5 trillion euro uh, until the mid of the century. And if we break this down on yearly in yearly numbers, we get to 191 billion per year. That sounds like sounds huge. gigantic at exactly. first impression. Yeah. Absolutely. And it is a gigantic number. Yet, it's also important to keep in mind that only 72 billion out of those 191 billion are additional investments. So a lot of investments need to be done because they are reinvestments, thinking of uh, steel industry, for example. In the next 10 years, there's the need to replace around half of all locations where steel is, is made. And if those are rebuilt in a conventional manner, that will be less expensive given current CO2 prices. And it will be more expensive to electrify processes and to use green hydrogen. So the additional investments concern the climate neutral way of replacing those production locations. The overall amount on a yearly basis doesn't sound that challenging anymore. It's not that kind of unreachable sum anymore, right? No, I think, um, and that is something that I would anyways also say, the transition is feasible. Right. Yet, I think we shouldn't underestimate what it will take to really put it in practice. The technologies that are needed are on the table. We know them today. Yet, it still is the challenge to set incentives right so that companies will choose the climate-neutral technologies over conventional technologies that, from a price perspective today, are more attractive to them. I want to speak with uh, Geron Urz at that moment a little bit about traffic, inner-city traffic, how this shall be organized in the not-so-distant future if we want to reach 1.5. And also the housing, because we have a very different picture to other places in the world where you can build, where cities are developing as we speak, and you can choose different materials. In Europe, we have at least, or also in North America, we have existing structures that have to be made climate neutral. And that's quite a task, right? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And adding to what uh, Fritzi Köhler-Geib just uh, said, It costs money, and um, she stated that a lot of the investments needed are replacement investments for infrastructure, which is absolutely fair. That needed to be done anyway. But the cost of doing nothing and the risks associated to all those stranded assets are much bigger, and this reality starts to sink in in financial markets and in investments that the most costly scenario of all is doing nothing. So for mobility and housing, yes, they are extremely closely related. And the first thing we need to do in, in the future is to think mobility and real estate together and to plan our cities accordingly. And that means to redistribute city space, the public space in the cities. And, you know, there are a lot of things in technology that could be done for both sectors, for mobility in cities and for housing in cities. From a housing perspective, affordable living surely means that we need to change 
you know, the development of the project, the ownership models, but also the materials that we use. So timber for us is a crucial material because it's sequestering carbon, storing the carbon, it embodies carbon, and we can do much more with timber, even in high-rise and multi-story buildings nowadays, than we could imagine like 10 years or even five years ago. We cannot afford, you know, to have people commuting from far away based on their individual means of transport. So the whole model, you know, of the 15-minute city, as Mayor Hidalgo in Paris has put it, needs to come at the forefront and needs to be thought about for our European cities. Right. Ms. Kulagai, Kieran Utz just pointed out that the message is sinking in that we don't have another choice. If it's two minutes before midnight, it's a little not so optimistic message that it's sinking in as we speak should be beyond that at a certain point. But would you even agree that it is sinking in with all players, political, societal, and of course, financial, because this is crucial. I fully agree. And it's also true that the benchmark is not doing nothing, but the benchmark is even higher cost of not doing anything. There is a new study by the uh, Deutsches Institut für Wirtschaft that uh, basically quantifies the cost of extreme weather events and uh, climate adaptation to 3 trillion euro by 2100. And uh, it's clear that comparing with those numbers, then the investment in reaching climate neutrality sounds all of a sudden much more reasonable mm. and also feasible. The chance that the global community has is to move forward with concrete next steps on the ambitious internationally agreed goals. You also, I'm, I'm always wondering because you have to integrate the civil societies into the process because otherwise it's not going to happen. And you just did a survey, I think, about the sentiment, how do people stand towards uh, climate change and the measures against it? Are they very positive and enthusiastic or don't they agree at all? Yeah, we publish every year report a household survey on energy transition in Germany. And we were very pleased to see that opposed to our initial fear that with the corona pandemic, climate change concerns may just fall off the table, that quite to the contrary, people are as aware and support as much energy transition in Germany as they did before the crisis. What we are also seeing is that an even higher share of households actually does apply uh, energy transition technologies as, for example, photovoltaic on roofs or uh, electric cars in garages. It's now over a quarter of households that uh, applies one or more of those technologies, but it's a quarter of households. It's 27%. It's not 80% of households. And we do see that it is still a question of budget. It's uh, higher income households that basically apply those technologies because still today it is more expensive to buy an electric car than a conventional car, just to give one example. And if we want to get anywhere, we need to find ways to mobilize larger parts of the society for the uh, energy transition. 
Before we get to a framework we might think about, I want to introduce one more voice right now. If I would be Mr. Clinton, the former president, I wouldn't say that it's the economy stupid, but it's the city stupid. It is in our cities that we meet our challenges and that we profit from the opportunities that every transformation also offers to us or we fail there. So if we do not change the way of investing in our cities, and that's the same in any country in the world, even as the economic and cultural preconditions might differ, if we do not meet the challenges and cross the opportunities there, we will not do it anywhere. This is Oliver Weigel, head of the Division for Urban Development at the German Ministry of the Interior. It's a city stupid, he says, meaning cities deserve center stage when it comes to sustainable transformation. We have to look at both. We have to look at challenges. We have to look at opportunities. And I would like to hear from you a little bit about the opportunities. If the financial and fiscal policy measures fit, how can we benefit in cities and be probably a role model in Europe for the rest of the world? I think that, you know, a fair pricing of public space is one thing that's, you know, needed to be discussed. We give away the public space in cities basically for free. So that's just one example from the U.S., where in San Francisco, you know, there have been a lot of parklets uh, being rolled out over the years uh, with permission from the San Francisco municipality. And if you compare a parklet where someone can have, you know, a small business or extend um, his cafe or restaurant to the curb, this brings uh, on average $1,200 per day in serving customers at this, let's say, 10 square meters. If you give this space away for parking, um, the income equals something like 23 or 25 US dollar per day. And that's not different from Europe. So Paris and Milan, as two cities that are leading by example, started that discussion in saying we need to incentivize the productive use of the public space and focus on the quality of life. And they give tools, they give support, they speeded up the permitting processes to do that. And we saw the same in Corona happening in German cities, uh, that, you know, parking space, um, has been rededicated for other purposes. So from a European and a German city perspective, to me, I think it's, it's key to renegotiate the use of public space. We dedicate 60%, 60% of the European inner urban space to infrastructure, transport and parking. Important part. Let's zoom out a little bit, Ms. Kulagab, and look at the big picture when it comes to Incentives to taxation, to regulatory affairs. We, for instance, have the green bonds as an instrument that might steer us a little bit quicker away from fossil fuel usage for individual traffic. Is this plus other ideas the way to go? What ideas are currently in discussion beyond that? Yeah, I, I just would like to add one point to the previous conversation because it's actually linked to the answer of this question. And I think this is that we can't look at municipalities without looking at the federal system that we have in Germany altogether. 
It is true that municipalities are responsible for 60% of physical investment in Germany. And it's also true that we have a system of fiscal transfers across the different levels of government. And here we actually see that uh, even without the corona crisis, we had a backlog in public investment at the municipal level. And that's not only a question of finance, it's a question of having the adequate personnel that can basically accompany investments along the investment cycle. And I think this is a very relevant point if we think about how to reach climate neutrality in Germany, because it is basically true We have a huge chunk that has to be realized at the city, at the municipal level, and those municipalities need to be empowered. And to that end, is it necessary that you have compliance lawyers in every single small municipality or can that be maybe pooled and so on? But we need to look into the finances and also the tasks that are attributed to the different levels of our federal system. That's one point. And then the other point with regards to the finances, I do think there is some role for green bonds. It's also true that when we think about this instrument as a financial instrument, it's, it's fairly costly when it comes to the requirements by investors with regards to information and so on. And not A lot of municipalities in Germany are big enough or have uh, financing needs that are large enough that the instrument can make sense, that this instrument would be efficient for them. And therefore, it's no surprise that so far we only have a few large cities that have gone into this direction. I want to play you once more, Philipp Rodem. Executive Director of LSE Cities with this statement. We are still at the moment making major investments into industries, into types of urbanization, into infrastructure that is essentially entirely unsustainable. So what we are very much advocating for is a very sharp look at the existing expenditures and then sort of embark on a restructuring of public budgets initially without increasing any sort of additional monies that need to be made available. And uh, this principle can then be complemented by two further really important broad concepts, and we can unpack them a bit further. And the first is wherever public investments create private wealth, we have to have a very serious conversation about how uh, those that are profiting privately from, let's say, a new railway system or uh, better Uh, urban environments are also capable in paying, are making a contribution to recover some of those public investments. And on top of that, I think uh, environmental finance and economics perspective has always, have always argued that we need real costs and we need to internalize the, the negative externalities. And the way this is usually done is through a form of a taxation, which corrects prices, where pollution takes place, where Other also negative effects for cities and for the urban environments occur. And uh, these investments generate additional income that can then be used for the more ambitious, maybe also technological agenda, 
around enabling the transition. Mr. Hurd, sounds good, but I think this is the hardest part about it, you know, raising taxes and to put a price tag on this, but we won't get away without it, do we? I don't think so. If you frame it a little different, and if you think about it in a, in a different way, it sounds less painful because taxation always is something that scares people completely off. If you say there is a carbon fee and a climate dividend, which is the way it has been discussed, I think, in economy and in industry alike, it's slightly a shift and a different framing. So, yes, there are negative externalities. And for now, they are either not figured into the equation or, you know, the polluters don't care or get away with a too low price for that. Ms. Gulagai, the macroeconomic view on that a little bit, reducing corporate and private benefit from public investments, and of course, the element of taxation and the vivid discussion, for instance, on carbon tax and the price tag we currently put on carbon, which in the eyes of Fridays for Future naturally is way too low. And a lot of scientists say the same. And in the view, of course, of, of the industry is way too high. So we have to come to our senses in a way there, right? Yeah. So from an economic perspective, one would say the efficient way of resolving this challenge is to price CO2 that high that the revenues collected from that price are high enough to pay for the cost of extreme weather events. No, That right. may sound shocking, <laughs> recalling the big number I quoted just before. And I think that many people are afraid of that. To that end, I have to say that we could, of course, say we don't want to do this. I mean, I don't want to do this. The question is, do we have a choice? And from an economic perspective, one would say, well... It's actually the efficient solution to, to the challenge. And if we decide not to go that way, it will simply become more expensive because the cost of extreme weather events will increase even further than what we will anyways already see if temperature rises above those 1.5 relative to pre-industrial times. How do we agree on a transition path with enough time so that industry, so that societies can adjust. Because it is also absolutely clear that that will have tremendous distributional impact. May I add one thing? So within the European taxonomy and everything that is discussed right now, um, there will be, or in the Fit for 55 package, there will be an emission trading scheme for housing or for the construction industry. And by saying that you need to recognize that there hasn't been an emission trading scheme for the biggest emitter and the biggest industry in the world. So just for an impression, it's 40% of all resources that the construction industry uses. It's 35% of global energy consumption from the construction industry and buildings. And it's 25% of global water use related to buildings and construction industry. Right. Ms. Kullergeib. Yeah, I think it's also really important to mention, overall, we have been working with CO2 certificates for around 20 years now. And the CO2 price 
is nowhere close to where it has to be to set incentives right. And I think it is really key that we move towards using prices as instrument for, for policy setting. And I think that it is important that we do have the uh, emission trading systems in Europe now, but I do think that as we don't have a central bank for CO2 certificates, we do need to complement them with at least a minimum price towards the prices that over the longer period of time we need to see. And I find a, a very useful thought experiment. With our money, we certainly don't let the market work in itself. We do have a central bank that basically makes sure that there is a price that basically is not too volatile, that uh, moves in a certain way and so on. We don't have that for CO2. And I think that shows that either we need to have an institution that basically helps set a price or maybe even more efficiently, we do need to agree on a price. So a CO2 bank or just real pricing would create a level playing field in cities for the private and public sectors as well as the industry. Let's listen again to Oliver Weigel, head of the Division for Urban Development at the German Ministry of the Interior. We in Germany, but I know that many other countries, at least the ones that passed the new Leipzig Charter last year in November, that they are fostering innovative investment, that they're fostering kind of laboratories in our cities where we try to assess what we can improve in the funding streams. In Germany, the most famous or best well-known funding instruments are our urban development funding funds, which this year celebrated their 50th anniversary. So this is quite unique worldwide that you have a funding instrument. And for the first time since 2020, It is a binding prerequisite to have projects that are following the path of sustainability and especially SDG 11 if you want to uh, get money from federal and state governments. If you want to have money from the federal state, you have to fulfill this, Mr. Utz. Of course, we all know that SDG 11 means more than reducing or getting over carbon emissions and having good sustainable buildings, but it says in the actual text, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient and sustainable. And Oliver Weigel also argues that he says if we focus only on e-mobility, if we focus only on sustainable buildings, the social aspects get lost at the end of the day and we have cities that don't emit anymore but that don't have a center and that don't have this meeting point, that don't address closeness of work and living. How do you see this, this field? Yeah, it comes back to the integrated planning approach. I mean, um, if you ask yourself what a city is meant to be and what it's for, it is a place for everyone, for civitas, for the commons, for, for the people, for society to meet and to exchange and to trade and to live. I mean, that's, that's the key, the quality of life. And, you know, going back to the emissions and the energy that's used, yes, that is a big topic. And the KfW, for example, has been seminal and a role model. And my wish for the future from that point would be that we include 
the embodied carbon and the full life cycle, not just the operational part, but also the upfront and the embodied carbon that comes from production. Because the leverage you have with residential buildings is the biggest in the whole construction and building industry. It's not offices, it's not infrastructure, it is residential buildings. So given what Geron Oertz says, what would you say in a, in a sense of best practice instruments for financing the change within cities, sustainable change, and also in regard of SDG 11 as a more, say, holistic approach? Yeah, maybe altogether with regards to SDG achievement, KFW is moving very strongly in, in the direction of mapping our entire portfolio with regards to the SDGs. One, in order to basically help reach those goals and basically set incentives, but also to show that actually you can manage and operate a bank in a way that fosters climate neutrality. But of course, this is uh, in a way uncharted territory. There is a way in which I think about the financial instruments that are needed to reach climate neutrality. I think about the degree of maturity of technologies that are financed through those instruments. I think there is no way around basically subsidies and also tax benefits for uh, research and development, for example. When technology is ready to be introduced into the market, we need venture capital. We need basically forms of investing directly into companies Actually, it's also true that, that KFW in the past has, has played a role in that part of uh, development when we think about the Efficiency House 55. Uh, that was introduced, that program, when no one else was really talking about it. Right. And it means that from a business perspective, at that point, it may not have made a lot of sense. But yet, it was so very important and therefore it was useful and the right thing for providing loans with this subsidy component. Another example is wind offshore parks. When in 2011 they were supported through a KFW program, they were non-bankable. Today they run profitably in uh, the North Sea. I think we do have a lot of financial instruments. It's necessary to think about which existing instruments do apply to which part of the process. And then there is need to think further which gaps there are in bringing capital to the investment needs that we have for the transformation. There is maybe a need to use more venture debt. We could uh, think about securitization and so on. Thank you, Dr. Fritzi Kulageib. Chief Economist at KfW Group and Dr. Geron Oertz, Head of Sustainability of Gropius. One word answer. Do you stay optimistic when it comes to sustainability? Absolutely. Me too. That's wonderful to hear. This was the second episode of Empowering Cities. Learn more at new-urban-progress.org or check the link in our show notes. This podcast was produced by Alfred Herrhausen Gesellschaft, post-production by Das Progressive Zentrum, with music by Armin Wallem. 
Thanks for listening. Catch you at the next episode of Talking Progress, the podcast that explores progressive ideas for Germany, Europe, and transatlantic spaces.